What's up, guys? I'm Danny. What's up, guys? I'm Chris. And y'all are listening to Serial Knowledge. What's up, guys? Welcome back to another week of Serial Knowledge. Chris, what's going on? What's up, guys? How you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you doing? I'm awesome. I'm getting ready to go on vacation. I'm stoked. I'm going to be yeah. doing some research while I'm on vacation. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a ton of research while you're gone, too, to prepare for when you come back. We're just going to try to get as many episodes recorded and put out to you guys as possible. Yeah, that's the plan, guys. I mean... If you listen to it, you guys won't even know I'm gone, so... Yeah, yeah. We're going to try to keep up so much that you won't even notice when she's gone. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So, actually, guys, we have a change in plans today. I know last week we said we were going to Pennsylvania, right, Danny? Yeah, we were supposed to be going to Pennsylvania. I'm throwing you a curveball, mostly because my computer threw me a curveball and deleted <laughs> all of my notes. So... That was awesome. I, I really think God had, like, God had my back for this. <laughs> the morbid God had your back. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we were supposed to be going to Pennsylvania. We were going to be covering this interesting case, um, and all of my notes got deleted. So thank my computer for that. So instead, we are going to be doing the case that Chris really wanted to do that I yes. said she wasn't allowed to do, and now she's allowed to do it. So we're just going to say that, like I said, the morbid gods were just like, nope, we want to hear this one. So, yeah. So Chris is going to take it over today. So it's it's a it's a serial knowledge takeover. Yes. <laughs> I'm taking this over. I'm holding that Pennsylvania case hostage and I'm releasing this case. Yep, Chris is taking over today. So, so. instead of Pennsylvania, we're going to give you 3 seconds to guess. So today we are going to be going to California. You have 3 seconds to guess. Ready? Ready? Go. 3, 2, 1. And time is up, guys. All right, we hope you got your guesses in. Um most of you are probably wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I bet you like 90% of you are wrong because there's so many. There's too many crazy people in California. Too many murderers. Too many serial killers out there. I mean, Golden State, 10 Bundy went to, didn't he go to California at some point? No. No, uh, no but Rodney Alcala did. Rodney Alcala was there. Um, Zodiac, uh, Golden State, like you said. Oh, uh, Richard Ramirez was Richard there, Ramir obviously. Uh, the Elisa Lamb case happened in California. Yeah. Um, guys, we're. Us Californians, we're just fucking crazy, okay? Yeah, preach. Chris and I are both from California, so <laughs> That's if that, if that doesn't that. solidify how crazy Californians are for you, I don't know what will. Um, but anyway, Chris, why don't you tell them who we're going to be covering today? Guys, we are doing the case of OJ fucking Simpson. OJ fucking Simpson. The Juice. The Juice. That was his nickname in college, was The Juice. Yes. Football player turned murderer, question mark. If the glove don't fit, fit you, you must, must quit. So, I don't know. We'll see. We're we'll actually going to get into that. Guys, I just a little background. I thought I knew everything to know about the O.J. Simpson case. And then you researched it? <laughs> oh, my God, dude. Like, <laughs> when you, we get into the trial part, guys, you your minds are just going to be blown like my mind was. This is what I love about doing this show for all of you guys and for us, honestly, is like you think you know a lot about certain killers or murders or serial killers or whatever it is. And then you research it to the point of wanting to be able to present it and you find out all the things that you never thought you were missing about a killer or a specific case. Exactly. And it's fascinating. I oh, love it. Oh, it's so fat. I love it. Like, I just, I love going down that rabbit hole and just being like, coming out of it. I've told Danny multiple times I've come out of this rabbit hole and I'm just like, Just what? absolutely blown away. So. <laughs> yeah, I love um, that part of doing this show for you guys. So, 
Yeah, Chris is going to be taking care of OJ today. I hope yeah. y'all are excited. I am stupid excited. That's because Danny so was. Danny, fun fact: Danny wasn't alive when OJ. You know. Nope. Nope. This was a year before I was born. Um, this happened in 1994. I was born in October of 95. What's up? Um, I was four years old when the murders happened. Yeah, so you were like barely alive. Barely. Um, <laughs> I was barely at, a human at that point. You're only I four. was. I was talking to my brother about it last night because he asked my sister-in-law asked, "Well, what case are you guys doing next?" And because they haven't really listened, I kind of just you know. Yeah, you told him. You let them in on the secret. Yeah, I said O.J. Simpson and my brother. You can hear my brother in the background going, "What the fuck about O.J.?" What did he not know about what? No, happened? he he does. But my brother was like, "Okay, I was forced." My brother was like nine. Yeah. And he, but then he was like, "Yeah, I remember that. I remember the Bronco chase, and I remember some of the trials." So interesting. Uh, I he think must not have paid attention. <laughs> my brother's just very nonchalant when it comes to this stuff. When it comes to murder, like, <laughs> he's just like, "What the fuck do people want to know about OJ?" Well, all the information about how he possibly got away with murder, possibly didn't murder anybody. Who uh, knows? We will. We'll, we'll take your opinions at the end. Honestly. Absolutely, guys. I'm gonna. <laughs> I actually am going to put a poll on Facebook after we post this case. Yeah. Do you think he did it? Do you, you think, think he didn't do it? Do you think he had a hand in it? Um, you know, ask your ask your relatives too. I guarantee you, uh, your parents, grandparents, older siblings. Yeah, they probably know. Uh, they remember all of this happening when it happened. So ask around. See, give us your opinion. We want to know what y'all think. Yeah. All right, guys. So if you're ready to dive in, I'm ready to dive in. I'm ready. Let's get in there. All right, guys. So we're going to start with a little bit of background information. Um, Orenthal James Simpson was born on July 9th, 1947 in San Francisco, California. It was said that his aunt gave him the name Orenthal after a French actor that she supposedly liked. That's an interesting fact. I never knew that. I didn't know that either. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, Simpson's parents did go ahead and separate in 1952 when he was just five years old. Simpson, at that point, went to live with his mother along with his brother and sister. At the age of 13, Simpson joined a gang called the Persian Warriors. After joining the gang, he ended up spending a week in a juvenile detention center. That's interesting. I wonder... I mean, obviously, he was involved in a gang but i was just curious i'm curious what he did to have to go to juvie um there's no information that's weird i wonder if they scrubbed it but i think they might have just because he was a juvenile when that happened yeah yeah that's interesting Um, yeah uh throughout his high school life simpson was known for being really good at football but his horrible grades and lack of trying in school made it nearly impossible for him to get into a good football program in college Later on, though, he was accepted into the University of Southern California on a football scholarship to play as a halfback. I'm not sure what a halfback is. <laughs> a halfback is like a running back. Okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> through college, he did end up setting a couple of records and even went on to win the Heisman Trophy in 1968. In 1969, Simpson was actually drafted by the Buffalo Bills guys. I kind of scratch my head and wonder if they're like, yeah, we don't want anything associated with OJ now. <laughs> I mean, probably not, honestly. But, I mean, the Bills haven't really been good in a while. So anything <laughs> to get their name out there, they probably would jump at the chance. Um, although he did not do well at first, uh, he eventually earned the nickname The Juice. In 1973, he became the first NFL player to rush for more than 
2,000 yards in a single season. Yeah, OJ has some wheels on him for sure. Guy, I, I did watch some football footage just because, you know. Because research? Research. <laughs> I, he, he was good. He was really good. Yeah, I mean, it was kind of a like a legend for his time. I mean, he, he was. Yeah, he was really well. Um, he actually did not just play for the Bills. He actually played for my team, the 49ers, for a little bit. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. Uh, Miss Nicole Brown was born on May 19th, 1959, in Frankfurt, West Germany, to Miss Judith and Judy Brown and Louise Lou Brown Jr. Her mother was German, and her father was of American descent. After moving to the U.S., Nicole attended Rancho Alamitos High School in Garden Grove, California, and then later Dana Hills High School, where she graduated in 1977. Um, there's not a lot more information than that on Nicole. Nothing about her childhood, not really anything. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, maybe they just weren't like keeping records of stuff, and they weren't able to interview her parents or anything like that. Um, so... Nicole actually met OJ in 1977 after she graduated when she was 18 and working as a waitress at the Daisy, which happened to be a private club in Beverly Hills. They began dating even though Simpson was still married to his first wife. Simpson did go ahead and file a divorce from his first wife in March of 1979. I mean, he probably should have done that before he started dating Nicole, but yep. to each their own, I guess. <laughs> But he actually ended up not marrying Nicole until February 2nd of 1985. So there was a good um, amount of time between him divorcing his first wife. And, yeah, like six years. Yeah. So Nicole and Simpson would go on to have two children. Uh, Sydney, who was born in 1985, and Justin, who was born in 1988. So Sydney was born like right after they got married. Yes. According to Dr. Lenore Walker, the Simpson-Brown marriage was a, quote, textbook example of domestic abuse. Oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, Nicole did sign a prenup before they got married and was actually forbidden from working while they were married. That was part of the prenup. That's weird. Right? I guess he just, what, did OJ just want her home taking care of the kids? Yep. All right. Nicole would write in her journal that she felt conflicted about telling the police of the abuse because she was financially dependent on Simpson. Right, because in the prenup, she wasn't allowed to work. Exactly. Uh, Nicole described an incident in which Simpson broke her arm during a fight. In order to prevent him from being arrested, she told the emergency staff room that she had fallen off her bike. She would go on to write about how he would beat her in public, during intercourse, and even in front of friends and family. Get this, guys. Of the 62 instances of abuse, the police were only notified eight times, and Simpson was only arrested once. Jeez. I feel like I feel like that's like the privilege of being a professional athlete. Yep. I feel like there's a lot of a lot of athletes who do crazy shit like this, and not a ton of them really get in trouble for it. Right. I feel like that too. Um, on February 25th, 1992. Nicole finally ended up filing for divorce, citing irreconcilable differences. Uh, yeah, I feel like that's a very nice way of putting it. I would not have done that. I wouldn't have. I would have been like, he beat the shit out of me. I want a divorce. Right. I mean, that's just me, though, guys. I can't say what I would actually do in that situation. Right, yeah. If you've never been in that situation, it's hard for you to say what you would do. But so. Irreconcilable differences seems like a very sugar-coated way of saying you wanted a divorce. I mean... 
a lot of people tend to put that nowadays. Yeah. Um, that's just the generic sugar coat version of it, so you don't, you know, so it doesn't get messier that people don't actually know what happened. Yeah, exactly. Um, Nicole would go on to say that Simpson stalked and harassed her after they divorced, which is, you know, typically an intimidation act meant to force the victim to return to the abuser. Uh, she did go ahead and document an incident in which he spied on her having sex with her new boyfriend. Okay, that's really fucked up. That is super fucked up, guys. That's super fucked up. OJ, what's wrong with you? Oh, there's so much. There's a lot wrong with him. Uh, afterwards, Nicole said she felt her life was in danger because Simpson had threatened to kill her if he ever found her with another man. At this point is when she began drafting a will. Uh, Nicole did call a women's shelter called Sojourn on June 8th, 1994. She was considering staying at the shelter because she was afraid of what Simpson might do to her as she was refusing his pleas to reconcile their marriage and had reported to the police that a set of keys was missing from her house a few weeks earlier. These keys ended up being found on Simpson when he was arrested for the murders of Nicole and Ron Goldman. Guys, this is literally just the cherry on top of everything that's going to go down. Yeah, that's insane. So... On the evening of June 12th, 1984, uh, Nicole and Simpson both attended their daughter Sydney's dance recital at Paul Revere Middle School. Afterwards, Nicole and her family went to eat at Mezzaluna Restaurant. Of course, they did not invite Simpson to join them. One of the waiters at the restaurant was Ron Goldman, who had become close friends with Nicole in recent weeks, but was not assigned to the Brown family's table. Nicole and her children then went to Ben and Jerry's before returning to her condo on Bundy Drive, Brentwood. That's a terrible name for a street. That's I so knew you were going to say something like that. Yeah. Bundy Drive? (laughs) Are you kidding me? I so, like, when I I saw that, I was like, oh, Danny's going to get a kick out of this. I mean, as a true crime fan and serial <laughs> killer like studier it's fascinating but bundy drive bundy drive what yep. developer approved that <laughs> i don't know I, w- I would like to find out though and be like was there a specific reason why that's so funny um the manager of mezzaluna recounted that brown's mother telephoned the restaurant at 9:37 about or 9:37 p.m about a pair of lost eyeglasses The manager did go ahead and find the glasses and put them in a white envelope, which Goldman took with him as he left the restaurant at the end of his shift at 9.50pm, intending to drop them off at Nicole's place. Uh, Meanwhile, Simpson ate takeout from McDonald's with Cato Kalin, a bit part actor and a family friend who had been giving use of the guest house on Simpson's estate. Uh, Rumors circulated that Simpson had been on drugs at the time of the murder. And the New York Post's Cindy Adams reported that the pair had actually gone to a local Burger King where a prominent drug drug dealer, only known as JR, had admitted to selling them crystal meth. Jeez, that's a heavy drug, too. Well, this is just rumors, so it's just speculation that, you know, this yeah. is what happened. Yeah, still, that's crazy. Um, Nicole's neighbors testified that they had heard profuse barking coming from outside throughout the night. Beginning around 10.15 p.m. Around 10.55 p.m., a dog walker who lived only a few blocks away from Nicole came across her dog barking in the street outside her home. 
The Akita, whose legs were covered in blood, followed the man home. He tried to walk the dog back to where he'd found it, but the dog resisted. Um, I have to stop for a second because I don't know why this guy just kept on going. Yeah, that's really odd if he sees this dog whose legs are covered in blood and it's just like, I'm just gonna try to take you home there, bud. Yep, I mean, he, there was something that said that he looked the dog over to make sure that it wasn't like... Bleeding itself? Yeah, like injured. But if you don't see the dogs bleeding themselves... And you gotta wonder where that blood came from. You're not just gonna sit there and be like... Huh. Oh, sucks to suck, buddy. I'm uh, I'm late for dinner, though. I'm right? going to take off here. So later on, he left the Akita with a neighboring couple who offered to keep the dog overnight as the dog was agitated. Uh, the couple then decided to walk it back to where it had been found. Around midnight, as they reached the area where the Akita had been found, the dog stopped outside Nicole's house and the couple saw her body lying outside the house. When the police came to the scene... They also found Ron Goldman's body laying nearby. Jeez. I mean, can you imagine, like, you're taking this dog back to their owner and you just see this horrific murder scene? Yeah, you find the the owner of the dog dead and... The friend. The friend just lying there dead next to her. That's... All right. Um, I am going to put a little bit of a trigger warning in here, guys. Just, you know, warning. It's going to get a little graphic here. Okay. Um, the front door to Nicole, Nicole's condo was open when the bodies were found, but there were no signs that anyone had entered the home by breaking in or otherwise. Nicole's body was laying face down and barefoot at the bottom of the stairs leading to the door. The walkway leading to the stairs was covered in blood, but the soles of Nicole's feet were clean. Based on this evidence, investigators concluded that she was the first person to be killed and the intended target. She had been stabbed multiple times in the head and neck, but there were a few defensive wounds on her hands, implying a short struggle to investigators. The final wound inflicted ran deep into her neck, severing her carotid artery. A large bruise in the center of her upper back indicated to investigators that after killing Ron Goldman, the assailant returned to Nicole's body, stood on her back, pulled her head back by the hair, and slit her throat. Her larynx could be seen through the gaping wound in her neck, and her vertebrae C3 was incised. Nicole's head barely remained attached to her body. Jeez. So, I mean, that's just overkill to the max. I mean, he almost decapitated her. I mean, he pretty much, like, I, I would say 95, decapitated 95% decapitated her. Yeah, that's insane. That's That's major overkill. That's huge overkill. That's like... What, what do they call it? The rage kill? Yeah, like rage killings. Yeah, yeah. rage killings. Uh, Ron Goldman's body laid nearby, close to a tree in the fence. He also had been stabbed multiple times in the body and the neck, but there were relatively few defensive wounds on his hands, also signifying a short struggle to investigators. Forensic evidence from the Los Angeles County coroner alleged that the assailant stabbed Ron Goldman with one hand while holding him in a chokehold. Jeez. I mean, that's just a brutal way to go. I mean, literally, guys, the <laughs> I'll say this because I truly believe OJ is guilty with all my might. I'm going to say this out loud. OJ pretty much grabbed Ron Goldman, put him in a chokehold, and then stabbed him while he was holding him. I feel like you only see those types of situations in movies. Yeah, that's like... 
that's like when you're watching like a horror scene or something like that and you see like this brutal killing and you're just like come on like that's that's too much even for a horror movie but this is real life yeah this really happened to them guys that's insane um so laying near goldman's body was a blue knit cap a left-handed glove uh size extra large and then the envelope containing the glasses he was returning a trail of the assailant's bloody shoe prints ran through the back gate. To the left of some of the prints were drops of blood from the assailant, who was apparently bleeding from the left hand. Measuring the distance between the prints indicated that the assailant had walked rather than ran away from the scene. So, basically, they're saying that whoever did this, <clears throat> OJ, <laughs> just strolled through. Like, yeah, didn't run from the scene, just literally walked away like all right my work here's done uh, i'm gonna go home now right um also on the night of june 12th simpson was scheduled to board a red-eye flight from los angeles to chicago where he was due to play golf the following day at a convention with representatives of hertz rental car corporation for whom he was a spokesman now us 90s kids and our parents i don't know if danny ever saw this he may have you know way back what uh I mean, there's legit a commercial where you see OJ with a poofy afro, you know, running through the airport going, I hope I'm going to get there on time. <laughs> I don't remember ever seeing that commercial. I'll have to show you after this. It's freaking yeah, hilarious. That's funny. Um, the flight was due to leave at 11.45 p.m. And a limo arrived early at Simpson's Rockingham Estate to pick him up at around 10.25 p.m. The limo driver drove around the estate to make sure he could navigate the area with the stretch limo properly and to see which driveway would have best access for the limo. Guys, this tells you how big his estate was. He had two driveways. Yeah, seriously. Uh, he began to buzz in a com at 10.40 p.m., getting no response. He noted that the house was dark and nobody appeared to be home. He smoked a cigarette and made several calls to be able to get Simpson's home phone number to be able to contact him that way. He testified at one point he saw a figure the same size as Simpson enter the house through the front door, from where the driveway starts before the lights came on. He did not see what direction the figure came from, though. He testified that he saw Simpson's house number on the curb outside the estate, but no car was parked outside. The prosecution presented exhibits showing the position next to the house number on the curb in which Simpson's Ford Bronco was found the next morning, implying that the limo driver would have surely noticed the Bronco if it had been there when he arrived to pick him up. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if it's... If he's going to park in front of his house, he's going to park as close as possible. Right. So it would be near the house number, which makes sense because they have a picture of him being parked near the house number. So Right. So, so what where was his so what there's, yeah, right. Where was his Bronco was the when Bronco. the limo driver was there? Yeah, that's what they're asking. So around that time, the limo driver witnessed a shadowy figure head towards the south walkway where the bloody glove would later be found. Cato Kalen was having a telephone conversation with a friend. At approximately 10.50 p.m., something crashed into the wall of the guest house Kalen was staying in, which he described as three thumbs and which he feared was an earthquake. Guys, earthquakes don't sound like three thumbs, okay? No, they really don't. Not even close. Um, The last earthquake I was in was in 2008, so it's been a hot minute. Yeah, 13 years. Yeah. Um, But from what I remember, because I was 18... Um, 
It sounded like a freight train was heading towards us. <laughs> I mean, that's honestly what you could hear it coming. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. Earthquakes are not just like three <laughs> little thumps. It's definitely a lot more than so that. So the fact that he was like, yeah, it sounded like an earthquake and I feared it was that. I would have been like, you're a dumbass. Yeah, that's <laughs> you're obviously lying. Uh, Kaylin hung up the phone and ventured outside to investigate the noises, but did not go directly down the dark south pathway from which the thumps had originated. Uh, Kaylin then let the limo in and Simpson finally came out through the front door a few minutes later, claiming he had overslept. Both the limo driver and Kaylin would later testify that Simpson seemed agitated that night. Gee, I wonder why. (laughs) I guess murder will do that to you. The limo driver noted that on the way to the airport, Simpson complained about how hot it was and was sweating and rolling down the window despite it not being a warm night. Guys, this was in June. I mean... That that's kind of odd for June in California. I mean, not that I'm gonna sit there and be like, "Oh, it's never cold." It, it gets cold. Danny knows it gets cold. Yeah, it definitely, it definitely gets cold. But um, I mean, June that's odd. I mean, I guess it depends. If they're really close to the ocean, then it can definitely get cold. At yeah. Night. So the driver also testified that he loaded four bags into the car that night. One of them being a knapsack that Simpson would not let him touch, insisting he loaded himself. A porter at the airport testified that Simpson only checked three bags in that night, and the police determined that the missing lug- luggage was the knapsack the limo driver had mentioned earlier. Another witness not heard at the trial claimed she saw Simpson at the airport discarding items from the bag into a trash can. Detectives Tom Lang and Philip Van Etter believe this is how the murder weapon, shoes, and clothes Simpson wore during the murder were disposed. That's kind of ballsy, guys, to discard of murder attire. <laughs> yeah, murder attire, murder weapons <laughs> at an airport. Yeah, that's and th- this was at LAX. Okay, guys, let me tell you, LAX is not a quiet airport by any means. No, nah, that thing's fucking huge. I've flown in and out of LAX so many times, and not only is it fucking huge, but it's always busy. There's it always... always people there. I mean, yeah, this was late at night, so I could see how maybe there wouldn't be a ton of people. Even still, I mean, it's still always busy. Constantly. Like, I've, I've flown into LAX late at night one time. I think our flight landed at, like, 11 p.m. Mm-hmm. And it's still, I mean, just you almost have people around you at every single turn, no matter right. where you are. I mean, I haven't flown into LAX at night. It's just because my dad lives, like, an hour and a half away from LAX. So it's not convenient for him. But I have flown into LAX during the day, and it's like mad traffic, guys. Oh, yeah. I mean, during the day, it's a madhouse in there. But even during the nighttime, it's still pretty busy. So Simpson was running late for his flight, but he ended up getting on the flight. A passenger on the plane and the pilot both testified to not noticing any cuts or wounds on Simpson's hands. A broken glass and bedsheets with blood on them were recovered from Simpson's hotel room at the O'Hare Plaza Hotel. Uh, the manager of the hotel did recall Simpson asking for a band-aid for his finger at the front desk. After learning that Nicole was the female victim, LAPD Commander Keith Bushy ordered Detectives Tom Lang, Philip Van Adder, Ron Phillips, and Mark Furman to notify Simpson of her death and to escort him to the police station to pick up the former couple's children who were asleep in Nicole's condo at the time of the murders. Jeez, they were there? Yep. Oh my gosh. What kind of person does that in front of the kids? Well, but I, I, I mean, just... 
Patrick Freezy. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Patrick Freezy locked his kid in a room. In the closet, actually. Oh, yeah, it was the closet. (laughs) Yeah, Um, that's, yep. Well, it's just a, that's why we're here. We're here to talk about assholes and look at that. Look at us. We found another one. Woohoo! Uh, the detectives buzzed the intercom to Simpson's estate for over 30 minutes, but received no response. They noticed that Simpson's car was parked at an awkward angle, uh, with his back end out more than the front, and that there was blood on the door, which they feared meant someone inside might be hurt. Van Adder instructed Furman to scale the wall and unlock the gate to allow the other three detectives to enter. The detectives would argue they entered without a search warrant because of exigent circumstances, specifically out of fear that someone might be injured. Furman briefly interviewed Kaylin, who told the detectives that the car belonged to Simpson and that earlier that night he had heard thumps on his wall. In a walk around the premises to inspect what may have caused the thumps, Furman discovered a blood-stained right-hand glove, which was determined to be the mate of the left-hand glove found next to the body of Ron. This evidence was determined to be probable cause to issue an arrest warrant for O.J. Simpson. Yeah, I mean, I'd say that's definitely enough evidence. I don't know. I mean, to I mean, I mean, at least to bring him in, yeah, questioning to bring him in for questioning. You have a bloody glove that matches the glove that's at a murder scene. Yeah, I'd say that's (laughs) enough to bring somebody in and ask him a few questions. Um. So Phillips testified that when he called Simpson in Chicago. To tell him of Nicole's murder, Simpson sounded, quote, very upset, but was oddly unconcerned about the circumstances of her death. Phillips noted that Simpson only asked if the children had seen the murder or Nicole's body, but was not concerned about whether the assailant or assailants had harmed the children either. So, I mean, at this point, they're like, why are you more concerned about if the kids saw it than... Yeah, they're kind of scratching their head at where his focus is lying right now. I mean, I if I was in, you know, OJ Simpson trying to get away with it, I'd have been like, oh my god, oh my god, what happened? What happened? Are, are the, the kids, kids okay? okay? Yeah, exactly. Like, are the kids okay? Is Nicole okay? Like, what the hell happened? Right. That's how you get away with murder. <laughs> Guys, take notes. Chris knows. <laughs> oh, I know a lot. Not that I could ever get away with it, but... I don't know. You're making it sound like you could. Uh... I act like I could, but when it comes down to it, I probably like wrap you myself would, out. Yeah, you would break an interrogation for <laughs> sure. <laughs> Danny would be like, "I ain't snitching." Oh, I'm a stone wall. Uh, the police contacted Simpson at his home on June 13th and took him to Parker Center for questioning. Lang noticed that Simpson had a cut on his left hand that was consistent with where the killer was bleeding from, and asked Simpson how he got the cut. At first, Simpson claimed he cut his finger accidentally while in Chicago after learning of Nicole's death. Lang then informed Simpson that blood was found inside his car. At this point, Simpson admitted he had cut his finger on June 12th, but said he didn't remember how. He voluntarily gave some of his own blood for comparison with evidence collected at the crime scene and was released. On June 14th, Simpson hired lawyer Robert Shapiro, who began assembling Simpson's team of lawyers, referred to as the Dream Team. Shapiro noted that an increasingly distraught Simpson had begun treatment for depression. The following day, preliminary results from DNA testing came back with matches to Simpson, but the DA delayed filing charges until all results came back. 
Simpson spent the night between June 16th and June 17th at the San Fernando Valley home of friend Robert Kardashian. Shapiro asked several doctors to attend to Simpson because he had reportedly been in a fragile mental state. On June 17th, detectives recommended that Simpson be charged with two counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances of multiple killings after the final DNA results came back. The LAPD notified Shapiro at 8.30 a.m. that Simpson would have to turn himself in that day. At 9.30 a.m., Shapiro went to Kardashian's house to tell Simpson he would have to turn himself in by 11 a.m., an hour after the murder charges were filed. Simpson told Shapiro that he wanted to turn himself in, to which the police, you know, did agree because they're the ones that came up with the idea. Right. They agreed to this ultimately because they believed someone as famous as Simpson would not attempt to flee. Yeah, okay. well, that fucking backfired on you. Oh, that backfired majorly. Uh, the police agreed to delay Simpson's surrender until noon to allow him to be seen by a mental health specialist as he was showing signs of suicidal depression. He had updated his will, called his mother and children, and written three sealed letters, one to his children, one to his mother, and one to the public. More than a thousand reporters waited for Simpson's perp walk at the police station. But get this, guys, and I bet you can guess. <laughs> yep. He did not arrive as agreed upon. Shocking. I know, right? I'm so surprised by that. You should be because he's such an outstanding, top notch guy. Yeah, and not just because I know what happens. Right. <laughs> I'm shocked that this happened. The LAPD then notified Shapiro that Simpson would be arrested at Kardashian's home. Kardashian is a Shapiro told Simpson this, but when police arrived an hour later, guess what? Simpson and his friend Al Cowlings had disappeared. Oh my goodness, I wonder where they went. I don't know. Shall we find out? I think we should. The three sealed letters Simpson had written out were, of course, left behind. At 1.50 p.m., Commander Dave Gaskin, LAPD's chief spokesman, publicly declared Simpson a fugitive. The police then issued an APB for him and an arrest warrant for Cowlings. At 5 p.m. that night, Kardashian and one of his defense lawyers read Simpson's public letter. In the letter, Simpson sent greetings to 24 friends and wrote, quote, First, everyone understand, I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. He described the fights with Nicole and their decision not to reconcile their relationship and asked the media, quote, As a last wish not to bother his children. He wrote to his girlfriend, Paula Barberi, I am sorry we are not going to have our chance. As I leave, you'll be in my thoughts. It also concluded, quote, I can't go on, and an apology to Ron Goldman's family. That sounds a little suspicious. Right? The letter concluded with this, Don't feel sorry for me. I have had a great life and great friends. Please think of the real OJ and not this lost person. Most interpreted this as a suicide note. Simpson's mother collapsed after hearing it, and reporters joined the search for Simpson. At Kardashian's press conference, Shapiro said that he and Simpson's psychiatrist agreed with the suicide note interpretation, and Shapiro appealed to Simpson to surrender. Um, Danny, do you have thoughts on this letter? I think a lot of it's bullshit and just kind of a distraction for him to get away. Now, guys, we're not saying that someone who writes suicide notes is to be taken lightly. No, not at all. Um, but I think in the case, in in this specific case, it's very unique. 
And OJ doesn't really strike me as someone who <laughs> is actually trying to... Obviously, I don't think he's innocent. So first of all, him addressing his friends and everything, saying that he had nothing to do with Nicole's murder, I think is bullshit. And then him kind of playing it to sound like he might be committing suicide. I don't... I mean, obviously, OJ didn't commit suicide. He doesn't no? strike me as the kind of person to do that. So I think this is honestly just a way for him to buy more time. Here's my thoughts, guys. And I'll break this down a little bit. I, OJ was used to the attention. He was very much used to yeah, the attention. Yeah, absolutely. He was a professional athlete. He was right. a professional football player. He um, was definitely used to having attention. Now, in the letter, you know, he says... I had nothing to do with Nicole's murder. Right. But then he apologizes to Ron's Goldman, Ron Goldman's family. Exactly. For, which for is what? Super suspicious. Yeah, he doesn't say. So if you, I mean, I'm gonna find this letter. I'm gonna post it on our page on Facebook. All right, do it. Okay. <laughs> um, so at this point, news helicopters search the Los Angeles highway system for Cowling's white Ford Bronco. Yes, Al Cowling's also had a white. Ford Bronco. Go figure. At 5.51 p.m., Simpson reportedly called 911. The call was traced to the Santa Ana Freeway near Lake Forest. At around 6.20 p.m., a motorist in Orange County notified California Highway Patrol after seeing someone believed to be Simpson riding in a Bronco on the I-5 freeway heading north. The police tracked calls placed by Simpson on his cell phone. At 6.45 p.m., a police officer saw the Bronco heading north on Interstate 405. When she caught up to it, Cowlings yelled out that Simpson was in the backseat of the vehicle and was pointing a gun at his own head. The officer backed off but followed the vehicle at 35 miles per hour with up to 20 police cars following her in the chase. A huge fucking chase. But here's the thing. this I've seen high-speed chases. I don't know. Danny, have you ever seen a high-speed chase? Uh, like, like even on TV. Yeah, yeah, of course. Okay, I mean when they think of a when you think of a chase or even a high speed chase, chase in general, you think high speed. Like they're going to like do whatever they can to get away from the police. Yeah, exactly. That's the whole point of fucking running from the police is not getting caught. Uh, this Bronco was going thirty five miles per hour on yeah. the freeway, which is doesn't way... seem like he's trying to get away from anyone. No, I think he's just trying to buy time. Yeah, that's what I'm, I think all of us, he was just trying to buy time. The letters running, like all of it, he was just trying to buy himself more time. Right. So Robert Turr of KCBS-TV was the first to find Simpson from a news helicopter. After colleagues heard that the FBI's mobile phone tracking had located Simpson at the El Toro Y, more than nine news helicopters eventually joined the pursuit. Turr compa- compared the fleet to Apocalypse Now, and the high degree of media participation caused camera signals to appear on incorrect television channels. The chase was so long, guys, that one helicopter ran out of fuel, forcing its station to ask another for camera feed. That's crazy. That's so funny. I'm, I'm not even kidding you guys when I sit there and say, this was the biggest, biggest case of California in the 90s. Oh, absolutely. Huge. Absolutely. And we'll actually get into that here shortly. Knowing that Callens was listed to KNXAM, sports announcer Pete Arbogast called Simpson's former USC coach, John McKay, and connected him to Simpson. Both men wept. Simpson told McKay, Okay, coach, I won't do anything stupid, I promise. Um, and this was off air. 
which I don't know how they knew what Simpson was saying. I'm wondering if uh, the coach, if McKay, testified and told them exactly what he said when he called. There's actually no record of McKay testifying. So, I mean, just because there's no record, though, doesn't mean... Yeah, I mean, he could have been interviewed and not actually testified during trial, but he could have been interviewed at the station and just didn't choose to testify. I don't know. Right. There's a quote saying that there's no doubt in my mind that McKay stopped OJ from killing himself in the back of that Bronco. Um, And that's what Arbogast said. McKay reiterated on radio his pleas to Simpson to turn himself in instead of committing suicide. He said, quote, My God, we love you, Juice. Just pull over and I'll come out and stand by you all the rest of my life. Walter Payton, Vince Evans, and others from around the country also pleaded with Simpson over the radio to surrender. At Park Center, officials discussed how to persuade Simpson to surrender peacefully. Lang, who had interviewed Simpson about the murders on June 13th, realized that he had Simpson's cell phone number and called him repeatedly. A colleague hooked a tape recorder up to Lang's phone and captured a conversation between Lang and Simpson, in which Lang repeatedly pleaded with Simpson to, quote, throw the gun out of the window for the sake of his mother and children. Simpson apologized for not turning himself in earlier that day and responded that he was, quote, the only one who deserved to get hurt and was, quote, just going to go away with Nicole. If he didn't do anything wrong, then why is he the only one who deserves to get hurt? That's my thought. Mm, I agree with you. Also, it's kind of fascinating. I didn't know that Walter Payton was one of the people who helped try to get OJ to stop. Yep. That... I mean, Walter Payton, that is a literal legend in the yep. football world. So, But... Uh... Evidently, he was friends with OJ. Yeah. I mean, a lot of these really well-known guys were because OJ was, like, really good back in the day. Right. Simpson asked Lang to, quote, just let me get to the house and said, quote, I need the gun for me. Cowling's voice is overheard in the recording. Uh, and this was after the Bronco had arrived at Simpson's house. And it was, you know, the house was surrounded by police. But he was heard pleading with Simpson to surrender and end the chase peacefully. Los Angeles streets emptied and drink orders stopped at bars as people watched on television. This is where I'm going to get into it, where you guys are going to start seeing how big this case was. Every television showed uh, showed this chase. ABC, NBC, CBS, and CNN. And all local news outlets interrupted regularly scheduled programming to cover the incident. This was watched by an estimated 95 million viewers nationwide. That's insane. That's almost a third of the amount of people who live in America. They actually said that this was bigger than any sporting event that, I mean, that had occurred. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. Uh, The chase was covered live by ABC anchors Peter Jennings and Barbara Walters on behalf of the network's five news magazines, which achieved some of their highest ever ratings that week. The chase was also broadcasted internationally, with Gascon's relatives in France and China seeing him on TV. Uh, thousands of spectators and onlookers packed overpasses along the route of the chase, waiting for the white Bronco. I mean, at this point, guys, this is a madhouse. Oh, absolutely. This is a complete shit show. In a festival-like atmosphere, many had signs urging Simpson to flee. Spectators were shouting, Go, OJ, go, and encouraging the actions of a possible suicidal murder suspect which outraged Jim Hill, um, among those broadcasting pleas to their friend to surrender. I mean, can you guys imagine for five seconds that your friend or family member 
was right a murder suspect and not only that they're suicidal and they're driving around all crazy from police and shit and your thought is to be like go oj go like no that i mean this is not even them this is i know i'm just saying oh you're i mean yeah i don't know like if you're seeing people cheering this person on i would be livid i would be livid guys uh jack ferrera and mike smith were among those watching the car chase not knowing why they felt part of a quote common emotional experience uh one author wrote as they, quote, wondered if OJ would commit suicide, escape, be arrested, or engage in some kind of violent confrontation. Whatever might ensue, the shared adventure gave millions of viewers a vested interest, a sense of participation, and a feeling of being on the inside of a national drama in the making. Simpson reportedly demanded that he be allowed to speak to his mother before he would surrender. The chase ended at 8 o'clock p.m. at his Brentwood estate where his son Jason ran out of the house, gesturing wildly, and 27 SWAT officers waited. Jeez, they literally just brought the whole fucking cavalry out for him. They they brought the whole fucking cavalry. Yeah, that's insane. After remaining in the Bronco for about 45 more minutes, Simpson exited at 8.50 p.m. with a framed family photo and went inside for about an hour. A police spokesman stated that he spoke to his mother and drank a glass of orange juice. OJ, what were you thinking? Like, literally, what were you thinking? You went inside, called your mom, and then decided you wanted a glass of orange juice? Yeah, OJ needed some OJ. It's all good, you know? (laughs) The only thing he demanded was to speak to his mother. He did not say, I need a glass of OJ. Well, what do you do when you are in trouble with someone who isn't your mom? You ask for your mom, so he's in trouble. He's asking for his mom. I totally get the asking for your mom, but I'm curious about the whole (laughs) wanting to drink... A glass of OJ. I mean, he was in the car for 45 more minutes after they got home, back to his estate, and then he went inside for about an hour longer before he finally surrendered. Right. Um, Shapiro arrived after that, and Simpson surrendered to authorities a few minutes later. In the Bronco, police found $8,000 in cash, a change of clothing, a loaded 356 Magnum, a United States passport, family pictures, and a disguise kit with a fake goatee and mustache. I would say that a disguise kit sounds a little suspicious, but also, like we've been saying the whole time, this guy's a professional football player. And so part of me wonders if maybe he had this disguise kit because of, like, normal traveling, trying to get, like, through an airport without being noticed as a professional football player because he's just trying to get home. So uh, He might have. Just, just playing devil's advocate because... <laughs> I'm like, if I'm a professional athlete or or some type of like professional entertainer or something like that, and I get bombarded by fans everywhere I go, sometimes I'm not going to want to have to deal with that. Sometimes I just want to get home without being completely bum-rushed by all these people trying to get autographs or talk to me or take a picture or whatever. Right. So Simpson was booked at Parker Center and taken to Men's Central Jail. Callings was booked on suspicion of harboring a fugitive and held on a $250,000 bail. The Bronco chase, suicide note, and items found in the Bronco were not presented as evidence in the criminal trial. Marsha Clark conceded that such evidence did imply guilt, yet defended her decision, citing the public reaction to the chase and suicide note 
as proof that the trial had been compromised by Simpson's celebrity status. Most of the public, including Simpson's friend Al Michaels, interpreted his actions as an admission of guilt, yet thousands of people encouraged him to flee prosecution and were sympathetic to his feelings of guilt. That's just ridiculous. I don't understand why, just because you're a fan of his, because of his football career, that you feel the need to defend him when he murdered somebody. Um, yeah, I agree with Danny that even if you're a fan of O.J. Simpson's, why are you sympathetic to how he's feeling? Right, exactly. I feel like just because you're a fan of his as a sports player doesn't mean that you have to be a fan of his through murder. Right. So on June 20th, guys, Simpson was arraigned and pleaded not guilty to both murders and was held without bail. The following day, a grand jury was called to determine whether to indict him for the two murders but was dismissed on June 23rd as a result of excessive media coverage that could have influenced its neutrality. Which makes total sense because A, how much status OJ had, but B, how much status the chase and everything brought to the case. Like, there's no way it was going to remain neutral. Right. Um, It almost reminds me of, and Danny should remember this, when Michael Jackson went to trial. Right, yeah, for sure. How huge that was. Yeah, it was, I mean, absolutely insane. Instead, authorities held a probable cause case hearing to determine whether to bring Simpson to trial. California Superior Court Judge Kathleen Kennedy Powell ruled on July 7th that there, in fact, was sufficient evidence to bring Simpson to trial for the murders. At his second arraignment on July 22nd, when asked how he pleaded to the murders, Simpson firmly stated, quote, absolutely 100% not guilty. Okay, OJ. (laughs) Sure you aren't. Okay, OJ. Absolutely 100% not guilty. We get you. I 1,000% get you. No, I don't. Uh, Jill Sibley testified to the grand jury that soon after the time of the murder, she saw a white Ford Bronco speeding away from Bundy Drive in such a hurry that it almost collided with a Nissan at the intersection of of Bundy and San Vincent Boulevard, and that she recognized Simpson's voice. I mean, she recognizes his voice and sees a Bronco speeding away from where Nicole lived. A little suspicious. I mean, yeah, that is a little suspicious. Um, Obviously, it's not, like, that's circumstantial evidence. Obviously, that's not hard evidence at all, but given everything we already know, that's uh, pretty compelling. So, she she actually ended up talking to a television show called Hard Copy, uh, and she got paid $5,000 for giving her a little spiel. Yeah, that's that doesn't surprise me. There's probably going to be a handful of people trying to get a quick buck out oh, of Oh, ju- just this. wait. Yeah. Um, but because of this, the prosecutors could not use her yeah, of course testimony not. at trial. Because, no, because she's making money off of it. Right. Um, another one, Jose Camacho of Ross Cutlery provided store receipts showing that Simpson had purchased a 12-inch stiletto knife six weeks before the murders. The knife was recovered and determined to be similar to the one the coroner said caused the stab wounds. The prosecution did not present this evidence at the trial because Camacho sold his story to the National Enquirer for $12,500. Dude, come on. We are trying to solve a murder here. Yep. A test on the knife, however determined that an oil used on new cutlery was still present on the knife, indicating that it had never been used. Okay, well, at least that's 
some sort of saving grace for that guy. It's like, he's still making money off of it, which is absolutely ridiculous, but at least now we have proof that it wasn't that one. Right. Uh, former NFL player and pastor Rosie Greer visited Simpson on November 13th at the Los Angeles County Jail in the days following the murders. A jailhouse guard, St- Jeff Stewart, testified to Judge Ito that at one point Simpson yelled to Greer that he, quote, didn't mean to do it, after which Greer had urged Simpson to come clean. Aito ruled that the evidence was in- inadmissible as hearsay. At first, Simpson's defense sought to show that one or more hitmen hired by drug dealers had murdered Nicole and Ron, giving Nicole a, quote, Colombian necktie because they were looking for Nicole's friend, Faye Resnick, a known cocaine dealer who had failed to pay for her drugs. And for those of you who don't know, a Colombian necktie is where you get your throat slit. I kind of figured that. Yeah, but not everyone's gonna know that. So, just well, I, I get I had some inkling of what it was, but I didn't want to like come out here and be like, I know what that is. I, I do know what that is. Um, <laughs> so, is yeah. it like for? Is it like complete? It's so they call it a Colombian necktie because it goes like from one side of your neck to the other side of your neck, and then the amount of blood that spills out runs down your chest. Like oh, a yeah, yeah, exactly. So, see, Danny knows. Danny I do knows. know. I know. So, <laughs> for any knowledges out there who didn't know, that's what a Colombian necktie is. Uh, so Faye had ended up staying for several days at Nicole's condo until entering rehab four days before the killings. ITO ruled that the drug killer theory was quote, highly speculative with no evidence to support it. Consequently, IDO barred the jury from hearing it and prohibited Christian Reihart from testifying about his former girlfriend Resnick's drug problems. So I mean, he's saying that it could have happened. Right, but that it's not pertinent enough to hear in trial. Uh, Rosa Lopez, a neighbor's Spanish-speaking housekeeper, stated on August 18th that she saw Simpson's Bronco parked outside the house at the time of the murders, supporting his claim he was home that night. During cross-examination by Clark, Lopez admitted she was not sure what time she saw Simpson's Bronco, but the defense still intended to call her. However, a taped July 29th statement by Lopez did not mention seeing the Bronco, but did mention another housekeeper was also there that night, Sylvia Guerrera. Prosecutors spoke with Guerrera, who said Lopez was lying and claimed the defense offered both housekeepers $5,000 to say that they saw the Bronco that night. I mean, there's just so much fucking meddling in this case. Like, so many people are just trying to make money off of it or trying to make people quiet or say things that they didn't actually see. It's just so fucking twisted. Right. When ITO warned the defense that Guerrero's claim, as well as the earlier statement, not mentioning the Bronco and the tape, where Clark claims, quote, that Lopez is clearly being coached on what to say, will be shown to the jury if Lopez testifies. They dropped her from the witness list. Yeah, that was probably smart of them to drop that, her from the witness yeah. list. <laughs> <laughs> because I guarantee you, if they had kept her on there. She would probably lie. Uh, not that, but it would have gone downhill. Yeah, it definitely would have. That's for sure. It would have been even more of a shit show than it already was. Oh, it's a huge shit show, and we'll get into that later because 
Uh, looking at the time, I'm actually going to wrap this up. Let's do it. Because I feel Let's like... Leave I, them hanging for the trial. I gave you guys so much information. And trust me, I am nowhere near done. No, this... This is at least going to be a two-parter, obviously, because we're stopping now, but it might even be a three-parter because looking at these notes you have written here, Chris, yeah, we're not even halfway through. So We are not. Isn't it awesome? <laughs> this is going to be a very long case, and I'm excited for it. I don't know about you, Chris. I don't know about y'all knowledgers, but I'm excited for it. I told Danny I was pulling out the big guns with this. Yeah, and she's not kidding. So I hope y'all came ready to hear about the juice the murdering juice. people. Mm. <laughs> it's deadly juice is what it is. <laughs> it's poisonous. Do not drink this juice. Do not drink the Kool-Aid. Okay. Did we Wrong. have to go there? <laughs> it's too soon. <laughs> too soon for that. Forever too soon. We are not in Jonestown. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. I hate to leave you hanging, but we are done with part one of the juice oj simpson yeah so stick around for part two um obviously you won't have to guess where we are because uh we will not be uh deleting these notes (laughs) so part two will be happening next week so hang out to see what the trial sounds like Um. and and don't forget to send us an email. You can hit us up at serialknowledgepod at gmail.com. Send us a suggestion for a case when we're done with OJ. Or you could even uh, get your guesses in for whenever we do finish OJ. You know, obviously <laughs> whenever that may be. <laughs> right. Next week we'll have part two. Um, obviously, looking at these notes, it might be a part three. We don't know. But send your guesses in. Send us uh, suggestions and everything. We love hearing from you guys. So definitely do that at the Gmail. Yep. Um, you can also find us on Facebook. That's facebook.com slash Pod, where we have our fan page, where you can follow us. We post uh, stuff about our episodes. We post pictures to go with it, little descriptions. And uh, so you can find us there. And from there, you can also find our uh, Serial Knowledge group, where you can become a knowledger and interact with us and other listeners. So just mm-hmm. find the group through the fan page that's at facebook.com slash Pod. Ask yeah. to join, and we'll bring you on there. And you can interact with everyone. You can interact with us on there. I love interacting with you guys. Yeah, we love hearing from you guys on the Facebook and at the Gmail. So hit us up on both of those. But uh, until next week, y'all. See ya. We will catch you later. Bye. Peace.